The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. In this episode of the pod, A History of Midwestern Music, we welcome three leading experts in the musicology field, distinguished professor emeritus J. Peter Burkholder, chair of musicology at Jacobs Helena Goldberg, and director of the Center for the History of Music Theory and Literature, Massimo Osi. Let's get started. Peter Burkholder, the man who literally rewrote history. Um, I'm so honored to be speaking with you and your colleagues today. You are recently retired professor emeritus of the IU Jacobs School of Music, musicology department. And the word musicology, there's more to musicology than the broad study or history of music. Would you describe to our listeners in your own words what musicology is and its importance to a school's curriculum? It has an interesting history itself. Uh, Musicology started in the 19th century uh, with scholars who were interested in transcribing and reviving pieces of music that were uh, centuries old by that point and needed to be released in new editions to make them accessible. Uh, In many cases needed to be transcribed out of older forms of notation or uh, forms of notation that most people would not read. Mm. And uh, so musicologists did that. They also functioned as sort of curators of what was developing in the 19th century as a kind of museum of music, um, as uh, in the concert hall classics that seemed immortal by Bach Mm -hmm. and others accumulated. Um, the, um, uh, The collection in that sort of musical museum needed to be rationalized and put in order. So um, uh, Guido Adler, one of the inventors of musicology, um, uh, decided that the main thing that we needed to do was study the history of musical style. And that was true for a long time. But alongside Mm -hmm. that is the history of how music has fit into culture Mm -hmm. and also um, how music actually works. Two areas split off from musicology. Uh, One focused on the music itself, uh, has become known as music theory. Another focused on music in cultures other than Western Europe and the Americas, uh, is known as ethnomusicology. Uh, But musicology in the last 40 years or so has become broader and broader to really encompass anything about music, about uh, its current circumstances or its past circumstances. So, Uh, You asked also what the importance of musicology or the history of music to a school of music is. Um, I think one aspect of that is well put by a former colleague of mine, Austin Caswell, who Mm. said, "If if you don't know the history of your craft, then you don't really know your craft. And so, he insisted that it was important for School of Music students to learn about the history of music, not just the history of music for their own instrument, 
but music in its broader contexts, because so often uh, composers and musicians borrow from each other. So there's yeah. um, fugues by Bach that borrow aspects of violin concertos by Vivaldi and mm -hmm. uh, other sorts of intersections. Um, music in the 20th century written for classical concert halls that borrows from jazz and vice versa. Jazz right. that you can't really understand without knowing something about French Impressionist music, for instance. Mm -hmm. So from, from my perspective, one of the important things that undergraduates need to get from uh, a history of music class, uh, like the one I used to teach, is a sense of where they fit in a large map of the musical world. And my goal in that class was always really ultimately to get every student to design their own map, um, mm -hmm. their own sense of, of what music is and the lay of the land as it were, uh, and where they fit on it and where all their friends and their, uh, their fellow musicians fit on it. Well, that's all uh, wonderful, Peter. I, I'm so glad that you brought up Dr. Caswell as well. That's such a, a wise um, quote of his that you shared with us. Uh, is it typical for a musicology department to always fit within a school of music? Or, you know, I think of departments like ethnomusicology that exist elsewhere. They're not in our school of music, but would you find at um, just a musicology department elsewhere at a different institution that did not necessarily reside under the auspices of a school or department of music. Yes, indeed. So um, uh, my PhD is from University of Chicago, which does not have a school of music. It has a mm -hmm. department of music and um, musicology is one of the things that they do there. They also give degrees in music theory and composition and not during my time, they didn't give an ethnomusicology degree, but they do now. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Harvard, uh, where Massimo uh, uh, got his PhD, is another school. Um, uh, there are many that have departments of music rather than schools of music. Very interesting. I'd like to turn to Helena Goldberg now, the chair of our department of musicology at the Jacobs School. And um, Helena, I would love your insight regarding the beginnings of our musicology area and folks like Paul Nettle and Willie Appel and, and how they influenced the evolution of musicology at Indiana. So yes, as you, as you point out, uh, the uh, milestone in the establishment of the Department of Musicology was the arrival of Paul Nettle, who was a Jewish Bohemian uh, scholar uh, with a degree, with two degrees, uh, in law and in musicology from Prague. Mm -hmm. um, like uh, many other hires um, during the 30s and 40s at IU, not just at, uh, um, school of, at the School of Music, but also elsewhere, he was, um, he was a, a result of the extraordinary brain drain that Europe experienced um, during uh, during World War II and in the aftermath of World War II and, and some American institutions capitalized on that that brought these extraordinary uh, musicians, scholars, scientists into um, American universities. So um, Paul Nettle um, 
left uh, left um, um, Prague and um, and came to the United States and very shortly after was hired in um, uh, in in 1946 he came to the states in the 30s 1946 he, mm -hmm. he was hired at Indiana University and in some ways he kind of sets up the model of for uh, what you see over and over in the department, you know, an extraordinary depth of, of expertise among the faculty in the musicology department, but also an extraordinary breadth. Uh, he, mm -hmm. has, uh, he has written books ranging in topics from um, Luther and music and to Mozart and masonry and studies on Beethoven and Bohemian and Moravian music. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's worth pointing out that one of the first graduates uh, in the PhD program in our department was his son, Bruno Nettle, who also yes. became one of the most illustrious um, uh, alumni of our, of our department. He recently passed away uh, after having retired at the University of Illinois, but he also uh, served as a, a he, he was crucial in the establishment of ethnomusicology uh, in the United States and served as the, as the president of the Society for Ethnomusicology. And uh, his dissertation uh, defended in our department was titled American Indian Music North of Mexico. Um, <laughs> so uh, this was before the, the kind of the split between the musicology and ethnomusicology department. Mm -hmm which was largely methodological and and i want to point out that it's almost um it's it's more usual for musicology and ethnomusicology to reside under the same roof mm -hmm. uh, and we are uh, that much richer as as um the study of um, ethnomusicology and musicology by having two very very strong departments that have uh, that have good working relations and draw on each other's strengths and um, you know the people who followed, um, uh, who who came to the musicology department after um, uh, after Paul Nettle settled here, uh, were similarly uh, refugees from Ural. Walter Kaufman, um, uh, Vili Appel, and and then uh, later on when uh, Appel. Um, uh, retired, uh, uh, Hans Tischler uh, came in. They, they, uh, uh, they were also from uh, uh, from Germany or from Austria, uh, uh, and, uh, many of them with degrees from there um, already be when they came to the United States. And Appel stayed in Bloomington uh, through his retirement. He died here. Is that correct? Correct. Appel is another good example of, of what, what um, I'm talking about, about the depth of expertise and breadth of, of knowledge. Uh, on the one hand, you know, he specialized in early music, but even there, there is a, a broad ridge, you know, he, he wrote a, a kind of um, a fundamental study of um, keyboard music, history of keyboard music on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the, the book on musical notation, that was the textbook for the study of uh, musical early notation of music for decades. But he also 
was the author of the Harvard Dictionary of Music. So like many years later, Peter, you know, stepped into the role of generalist and was very much known as the author of this uh, dictionary. Mm -hmm. I believe that Baines actually uh, was very much interested in him because of being familiar with the Harvard Dictionary of Music. That's fascinating. Uh, going back to Paul Nettle for just a moment, would you say that when he was hired by the university that he was charged with beginning the Department of Musicology, or, or how did that actually materialize? There already was a department of some sort, um, and I can't tell you when it got the name the Musicology Department rather than Music History. Um, I don't really know that. Uh, and I was looking around for my uh, history of the School of Music by George Logan, and I couldn't find it in the last couple of days. I don't know where it got to. Dean Wolford Bain was uh, the dean starting in 1946, and um, Paul Nettle had just been hired by the previous dean uh, in that same year of 1946. And by 1952, we were putting out our first doctoral students, our first PhDs in musicology. So um, that shows that there was a really dynamic development of the department, whatever its earlier history, um, the great development of the department into what would eventually become a powerhouse happened in the 1940s and 50s in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And what a powerhouse it is. This goes to any of my guests, uh, who would, whoever would like to, to answer, we heard Helena speak on some of the other significant faculty hires, um, rock stars of the industry, you might say. What are some other major strides of your department over the years um, that really helped bring our musicology program to the prominence it enjoys today? I see it as a series of individual contributions for the most part. For instance, uh, Malcolm Hamrick Brown, uh, who just celebrated his 91st birthday, was hired in 1962 and was one of the very first scholars of Russian music in the United States. He was the first to get into the archives in uh, the Soviet Union to really uh, make a study of um, composers like Prokofiev and Shostakovich. And uh, helped nurture the field. Uh, Vili Apple was, of course, very important uh, for the books that he wrote and for the mentoring he did of uh, younger scholars. Um, he was ultimately replaced in 1965, or succeeded, I should say. No one can be replaced, really, but he was succeeded by Hans Tischler, who became one of the um, leading editors of medieval music. Uh, the volume of his editions would just fill an entire bookcase. And then uh, other individuals uh, hired in turn, uh, people like Peter Brown, an expert on Haydn and on classical music, who uh, at his death in 2003 was producing a massive work on the symphonic repertoire, which is still undergoing under other leadership today. Uh, George Bulow, one of the main um, uh, and important scholars of rhetoric in uh, the Baroque. Um, then uh, as that group retired uh, in the late 1990s, we hired uh, Dan Malamed, an expert on Bach and on Mozart operas, 
Massimo Ossi, an expert on Monteverdi and Vivaldi, uh, Helena Goldberg, one of the greats in Polish music, and uh, younger scholars as well who are still members of the department um, and are gaining recognition in their own right. Uh, one of them, Giovanni Zanavello, winner of a major prize uh, in Europe. So I, I would say that it's it's been a matter of uh, developing the faculty and also developing quite a group of graduate students. Um, we have a very long list of PhDs that we've put out from our department. Uh, many of whom have gone on um, to play an important role in their corner of the field. One of the things that was very interesting about Malcolm Brandt's hire uh, was that even before he was hired, he developed an affiliation with the Russian East, uh, uh, Russian and East European Institute. Um, and um, he was hired with the support of the then director uh, of the Institute, uh, Robert Burns. And I think it kind of immediately marked the expansion of our affiliations across the campus. I mentioned already, you know, the, the interest of some of the faculty members in ethnomusicology. By the way, Walter Kaufman was a scholar of North and South Indian uh, uh, music of raga and sacred music as well. And um, with, with the affiliation with REI, which I am continuing and uh, which has been the foundation of the success of many of our students who uh, draw uh, academically um, in terms of a community, our, our PhDs who worked in the region. Uh, this is an example of the kind of affiliations that we have developed over the years. For example, uh, one of our current colleagues, Judah Cohen, is now the director of Jewish studies. Several members of the department have strong affiliation with Renaissance studies, and the list goes on and on. Perhaps the most recent affiliation that we have been cultivating is the affiliation uh, between uh, members of our department at the, and the Institute for Digital Studies, and that uh, um, there is also strong collaboration from Chamtol, I'm sure Massimo will talk about. That. So I think that is one thing to, to, to keep in mind, and I see it as a tremendous strength of, uh, of our department. The other thing that I think was very interesting that happened really starting in the 90s, there was a, a, a realignment in the department in terms of diversity. The department, like all departments in in musicology was mostly, you know, it was a male-dominated department. Jane Falcher mm -hmm. was the, the first female faculty uh, hired by the department. But there was an acceleration of, of hiring of, of women faculty. Professor Ayanna Smith uh, uh, also came to us as um, uh, African-American uh, mm -hmm. faculty. More recently, uh, uh, Sergio Spina Romero, but this is not just the, the the personal background of the scholars, but I think we have also expanded in terms of the expertise to uh, include scholars of jazz, um, to, to include uh, scholars of cultural studies, 
to engage with uh, uh, other genres of African-American music, you know, not just the, the genres that we are studying, but the kind of questions and how we ask questions about musicology and about music. And I think that has been also a very interesting trend that, that has made our department stronger. Massimo, we've heard a lot about what makes the IU Jacobs School of Music Department of Musicology so great, and I, I couldn't agree more strongly. More generally, though, what makes a musicology department unique from its peer institutions and therefore attractive to prospective students? Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, I think there are really three components um, that, uh, that really single out any given department. Uh, first of all, it's the size and quality of the faculty. And we have been talking about that. Um, you know, you have, uh, first of all, a group of something around 11 or so musicologists. Uh, this is one of the larger departments in the country. And uh, it is uh, very distinguished. Uh, that certainly is one of the elements that makes the department stand out, the quality of research that emerges from the department's faculty. The second element, I think, is uh, the fact that there are some very interesting uh, concentrations of scholarship within the department. There are areas of strengths, and they're widely distributed. I mean, we have two people working in Renaissance. We have three people working on Baroque music. Um, there are two who work in the later 18th century, two in the 19th, four in the 20th century. Uh, two of us have very strong uh, interests in ethnomusicology um, and its methodology. So students can come here with any given interest and find more than one person who is in that area and who can contribute to their studies, uh, sit on their dissertation committee, offer help, etc. And that's a very important component. The second uh, element is mentoring. We are known as a department that takes very good care of its students. Uh, we support them, we help them become individual scholars, we help them develop their own voices. Um, we don't impose on students' methodologies, ideologies, um, and this liberates students to explore and feel safe in exploring because we as a faculty are committed to developing uh, their personality as well as their knowledge. So we have very high standards, uh, but we make it possible for students to achieve those standards. Uh, and to believe in themselves, even uh, when they arrive not believing, they will leave here having a very strong sense of who they are. Um, and then the third element, I think, that makes us uh, stand out from other departments, many of our competitors actually, is the quality and amount of teaching experience that our students receive. We don't necessarily focus on pedagogy as a thing, uh, that every student must take and, and so on, but we do it. We have students teaching from early in their PhD program as assistants. We then, uh, as they develop uh, to a couple of years of assistantships, begin to let them teach their own courses. Um, first in the sequence, um, the musicology, the music history sequence for undergraduates, uh, but also developing courses of their own. Uh, we give them a great deal of responsibility, uh, but we also support them as they do this so that they don't fail. As a result, our students are ready to walk into any department and teach 
any subject, almost. And that's, I think, a very valuable um, uh, skill to have when you go out on the, on the job market. Uh, there are departments where students never teach independently. There are mm -hmm. departments where uh, they can only be assistants. And mm -hmm. I think that puts them at a disadvantage. So those three areas, I think, make us stand out particularly. I think that's also important. You know, um, as a Jacobs alum myself, I can attest to the great student instructors that you have all produced in your department that you've all mentored. Um, I think of people like Molly Abels and Sherry Winks, now Sherry Bishop and, and Dan Bishop, all uh, wonderful scholars that I had the pleasure of learning from and interacting with over the years. Um, and, and they're just truly, truly wonderful uh, instructors doing no small part to all of you. Well, that, that's, yes, you've mentioned some of my favorite people uh, in, in all the 20 years that I've been here. Um, and there are others. I mean, I don't, I don't want to single them out in particular. But uh, yes, we, uh, we do our best to let the students see how we teach, see how we approach the classroom. Um, mm -hmm. And they learn from us uh, almost by osmosis, by watching us do it, by doing it themselves. And yes, thank you for bringing that up. We have wonderful, wonderful um, student uh, assistants and, and uh, um, uh, lecturers who come from the department. I'd like to add another aspect. Um, the three things that Massimo uh, pointed to are, I think, the most important. But we also are, uh, another side of our mentorship is helping our students succeed as presenters at conferences. Uh, we have... Uh, an almost weekly colloquium series where students who are giving a presentation at a conference can do uh, a dry run of it in front of the entire department. And because our interests are so broad, the questions that we ask uh, can be quite diverse. Uh, it's a very friendly room, but it also stimulates people to think through their presentations and um, imagine what all possible questions uh, might come. So they are extraordinarily well prepared by the time they speak at the American Musicological Society or at some other conference. And our graduate students come back from these conferences regularly and tell us, I was much better prepared than the graduate students from such and such an institution or some other place. I was going to say, one of, one of the things that really uh, makes the department stand out uh, is the number of students who present at conferences. Uh, we are present at every AMS, I think. Uh, we're present at the Society for American Music, uh, the Society for Ecomusicology. I mean, we really, uh, our students represent us to the world. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's a way to make the department distinctive. It's no secret how proud our musicology faculty are of their students and alumni. Here's someone from the class of 2014 to tell us about his Jacobs experience and the somewhat unconventional path musicology has taken him down in his life and career. My name is Nick Taylor. I am originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I received my PhD in musicology from the Jacobs School of Music. Before arriving in Bloomington, I studied the oboe at the Interlochen Arts Academy and the Eastman School of Music. Throughout my time as a young music student, I was lucky to have access to fantastic music libraries. 
and I'm not afraid to admit that I oftentimes found myself more drawn to books about music than the practice room. Starting in high school, I became interested in the cultural context of music, the ways in which music was born out of a particular social and political climate. I loved my music history classes at Eastman, and uh, I had my heart set on being a musicologist. During my first year at IU, I took Dan Malamed's seminar on Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion, and uh, from that point on, I was hooked on early 18th century music. I ended up writing my dissertation on the published cantatas of Georg Philippe Telemann. Dan Malamed served as my dissertation advisor. While I was in the early stages of writing my dissertation, my husband, Casey Palazzi, who, by the way, studied trumpet at IU, won a job with the U.S. Army Fife and Drum Corps. Uh, and after he completed basic training, we moved to Washington, D.C. D.C. is a pretty incredible place, full of history and world-class museums. There's the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian, the National Archives, and other fantastic cultural institutions. It wasn't long after we got here that we decided that we never wanted to leave. Since graduating from IU in 2014, I've made the transition to a different field of study. I am now a librarian with the Congressional Research Service, which is part of the Library of Congress. In this position, I respond to research requests from members of the House of Representatives and the Senate. I also teach classes to Hill staffers on legislative procedure and congressional documents. I love my job in the government, and I love public service, and I'm frequently reminded that I likely wouldn't be here if it weren't for IU Musicology. Over the course of the doctoral program at IU, I developed my intellectual curiosity, my ability to find authoritative information, conduct analysis, teach in front of a large classroom, and present my work in writing, skills that I now use every day. I'd like to turn back to Peter now for a moment, um, or more than a moment. A History of Western Music, Peter, by Donald Grout had been the industry standard of collegiate music history texts for decades before your involvement as a co-author. What was the impetus for your involvement initially, and uh, at what point did you become the lead author on that project? What happened was one day uh, I was teaching our undergraduate music history survey 401-402 um, using that text. And one day the music editor from W.W. Norton, the publisher, Mike Ox, showed up uh, in my office and said, how do you like using the grout? And I said, my students can't read it. It wasn't written for them. Uh, it's much too complicated. Uh, there's too little explanation of important things. It assumes background they don't necessarily have. And uh, so I just give them a bunch of study questions and ask them to go dig the uh, treasure out of the text. And they, you know, if they can find the answers to these questions, they don't have to read it. He did not yeah. like that answer. But what happened a few months later is he called me up and said, how would you like to write a study guide for the next edition of uh, Grout's History of Western Music? And so I agreed to do that. And for a couple of editions, I wrote that study guide. And what we discovered in my own teaching of M401 was that with the addition of the study guide uh, as a regular practice, as sort of regular homework for the students, grades went up by almost an entire letter grade. Wow. Uh, it gave, it gave uh, students a better focus, um, a better um, 
ability to to figure out what was going on. So that ultimately led me to being the author who would take over the text. At that time, um, Donald J. Grout was already out of the picture. Um, it had been taken over by Claude Poliska, a very distinguished scholar at Yale. Grout had been at Cornell. Uh, these were both Ivy League professors accustomed to Ivy League students and mm -hmm. not really accustomed to teaching students at liberal arts colleges or mm -hmm. at a large uh, music school like our own. So the publisher, W.W. Norton, was interested in um, asking me to develop an approach that would uh, take over from them. And I was looking forward to collaborating with Claude, who unfortunately passed away um, just as this process was beginning. So I, that's how I ended up being lead author because I was the only living author. So, so um, uh, I like to tell the story that I promised to do this in, to write my first edition over the course of about three years and thought I could do it in about 3000 hours of work. So basically as a halftime job, it ended up being 6,000 hours over about three and a half years. It completely took over my life. One of my favorite quotes by David Baker, we all knew him, and I, I, I heard this almost every day listening to WFIU in the afternoon, our NPR affiliate, and it was a little uh, soundbite, and, and David said, people ask him, why do you prepare an hour before your jazz history class still? history hasn't changed. And his answer was, history may not have changed, but our perception of history has changed. And that quote always stuck with me. And I think about, Peter, your text and the various editions over the years, you know, how do you determine what will remain, what will be omitted, what might be edited to fit into a, a student today's, um, I guess, perspective or or uh, understanding of music history? That's an excellent question. Um, one thing that changes is uh, exactly our understanding of history. Um, I always liked to use the example of Josquin Desprez, one of the great composers of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. For my first several years teaching here, I had a very fun time of uh, always telling people what your textbook says is no longer true. Now what we know about Josquin's biography is this, uh, because in the, in the five years or whatever since the previous edition had been published, new discoveries had, had found out that he was not born in, in the 1440s, he was born in the 1450s, he was mm -hmm. a younger man, he didn't serve at this court, he served here, and so on and so forth. And the discoveries just kept coming and coming and coming. So even um, after my first edition, which came out in 2005, every edition I would check in with the Josquin scholars and say, what's new now? And put in the, <laughs> the, the new things because it was constantly, uh, constantly changing. Pieces that were in the accompanying anthology as examples of Josquin's music were by the time of the next anthology or two. Somebody had made an excellent argument that they were by somebody else. They weren't by Josquin at all. And so they had to be replaced with some other piece. Another thing was uh, new approaches in general. When I took over the text, it seemed to me that it had become quite dry. Um, although Grout's original in 1960 uh, had a nice narrative, it was a narrative 
mainly of the developments of, of musical styles and genres uh, rather than something focused on people or institutions that were producing music. And that had become much more of a focus. Uh, I wanted to uh, refocus the text, placing people at the core, looking at the values that they held, the values mm -hmm. of the broader society, but also the values of the individual composers and performers we were looking at, uh, to spend more time talking about performers. It had always been a, a history of composers. Also to talk more about the choices that uh, people made uh, based on the values that they had and the, the possibilities that were in front of them, including how tradition was continued and how it was changed with innovation. So I made these my themes. I also very much wanted to broaden the coverage. There was literally not a word about Latin American music in it. And um, having been here for a couple of decades, knowing the work of the Latin American Music Center, I knew that couldn't stand. There needed to be more representation of women, more representation of African-Americans, more uh, integration of the story of music in the Americas into the story of music in Europe as well. Just a small example of that. One of the themes of a section of the book had always been music in the era of the Reformation and how mm -hmm. music was used as a form of propaganda for Lutheranism or for other forms of Protestantism. And then the Catholic Church countered with its own, what's sometimes called the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation and used music uh, in their own ways to try to keep Catholics in the fold. Well, exactly the same thing was happening in the new world. As soon as there were Spanish boots on the ground, there were Catholic priests trying to convert the uh, natives of the Americas and yeah. they were using music to do it. In mm -hmm. Guatemala, the, um, uh, the soldiers were not able to conquer the highlands and the priests said, let us do it. And they went up there and taught the Catholic music. And who knows what the natives actually felt in their hearts in terms of religion. That's not a kind of history that I can really relate, but many of the musicians uh, or folks who were interested in music uh, became musicians in the Catholic churches. And so the use of music as a form of conversion was going on exactly parallel in the Americas and in Europe. And the same thing is true throughout history. It really, as soon as there are Europeans in the Americas, it is a parallel history on both sides of the Atlantic. So those are the sorts of changes that I thought were important to make in the text. Um, another way that the text would always evolve is that uh, my own ideas, my chapters would be sent out for review by experts in those particular fields. I have to admit, I'm not an expert in everything. In fact, when I was writing my first edition of A History of Western Music, I cannot tell you how many hours I stared at the TV screen thinking of how ignorant I was of whatever topic I was supposed to write about in my next paragraph or section, but made sure that I was getting informed by the best scholars out there and the best teachers. And mm -hmm. so each edition would be reviewed by dozens of teachers and scholars who were experts in their individual fields. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would get back a review of a chapter saying I couldn't have done it better myself, which was always lovely to hear. Usually it would be, oh, this is wrong and this is wrong. You need to emphasize that and don't forget this. And those were incredibly useful reviews because I could 
correspond with that uh, scholar or could use what was written in the review to, um, to make the book better. That's how the revisions to the book happened. Choices mm -hmm. in the anthology were similar. One of my main concerns was representation, that we need to make sure, I, I talked earlier about uh, the goal of a history survey to be like making a map. Think of the word survey, surveying a field. Literally, right. the first surveyors were map makers, like George Washington was a surveyor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if, if we want our students to make themselves a map of the musical world, there need to be enough points of interest so that they know uh, where things are. That, of course, can be taken to extremes, but it, it felt to me important that there be some representation of entire areas that had gone unrepresented before. Latin American music, very little Spanish music in previous editions. I wanted mm -hmm. that sort of represented music of Eastern Europe, but also jazz, music of African-Americans. Uh, mm -hmm. Popular music was essentially out of our control because getting permission for that is just too expensive. But thankfully, by the time my first edition came out, YouTube was showing up. And so uh -huh. if you mention a popular tune, you assume that that's accessible to people. Surely. Well, you know, um, we're also grateful and uh, and impressed and just blown away by the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do, Peter, now even in your retirement. I've now been through two editions of your book as a student at different points in my, my um, collegiate career. And I can say that while it's exhaustive, it's never exhausting. It's always uh, a joy to revisit your work. So thank you so much. That's very nice to hear. Thank you. Massimo, you are the director of the Center for the History of Music Theory and Literature. Did I get that correct? Yes. Okay. Would you mind explaining to our listeners uh, what the Center is, how it came to be, and its significance to your field? The Center is uh, affectionately known as CHUMTL, <laughs> which is not the most elegant of uh, <laughs> uh, acronyms. But mm -hmm. um, I think it's best understood really as a personal research project by Tom Matheson. And uh, it was basically, it began as a searchable database uh, repository of um, music theoretical texts in Latin. And uh, the fact that it was searchable was was absolutely wonderful because, of course, you could search for anything, any term, any um concept, uh, so long as you could identify it with a word, and, and you could see it in a variety of treatises and compare its uses. When it went online, it became extremely useful uh, to medievalists all over the world. And uh, it, was, uh, it was quite important uh, as a product of the department. But of course, it was linked to Tom specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, when Tom retired, I was chair and uh, he asked me, what should I do with uh, the center? And I was involved in trying to uh, retain the center as a project of the School of Music. Its core was this repository of, uh, of Latin texts. Tom's assistant, Peter Slemon, uh, in, eventually introduced a database, a similar database in French, and then other languages have been added to it. So that was uh, basically the nature of it. It was a text searching, we would call it an app today. Giuliano Di Bacco came in as director about 10 years ago and uh, modernized the nature of this database to include things like diagrams, images, 
Um, and eventually, and this is something that is still very much in progress, uh, music uh, as a searchable item. Uh, and uh, this is uh, really bringing the whole enterprise into the 21st century. Giuliano was working at the forefront of, uh, of particularly the music encoding um, technology. Uh, when he left, uh, the center passed on to me, and now we are considering a number of new areas of, of study. Um, first of all, we are going to introduce a journal uh, of which Giuliano Di Bacco will be the first editor. And this will be a journal devoted specifically to the philology of music theoretical texts, bringing in new texts that have not yet been uh, digitized and bringing in new techniques for the analysis of these texts um, uh -huh. and the production of editions of them. Um, it will bring in translations as well. So that's going to be a very strong component of the center, uh, a way of generating new scholarship and bringing in uh, more uh, materials. Other projects now are being added to the center, uh, which is expanding its purview. Giulia, uh, Giovanni Zanovello and I ran a project for five years in Italy called the Ostiglia Project, a little town in Italy that has a spectacular library of manuscripts. They have something like 5,000 manuscripts, all assembled by one collector. Um, mm -hmm. a priest uh, by the name of Greggiati. We decided to study the library as a uh, capsule. The collection uh, stopped being added to in about 1860, um, just before the priest died, and uh, has survived pretty much intact. So we are able to trace his collecting habits. Um, he also kept extensive notes, and we have uh, been digitizing those notes. And uh, the database will be a searchable database devoted specifically to the study of collectorship. When do things come in into a collection? What are what copyists the uh, collector is using, what markets is he buying his texts from. Um, so this is, uh, this is a very new project. It's not yet published, uh, but, uh, but will be appearing soon. Peter Burkholder has an important database of musical borrowing and related practices. The, the database is devoted to secondary literature on the subject, and uh, it's extremely extensive, and Peter is working very actively on it. So as you can see, there are a number of different projects. Uh, the way that I see the center growing over time is by integrating more and more student projects. This is something that uh, began actually uh, with the graduate student you mentioned, Molly Abels, who was working with me on musicians in Venice in the late 16th, uh, 17th century. And uh, her dissertation included a significant uh, digital component. And since then, there have been others who have done uh, similar work. Katie Chapman has worked on a Troubadours and Troubadours database, and, uh, and others have done so as well. So we are actually, in a sense, making it possible for our students, our graduate students, to integrate what is really one of the cutting edge aspects of 21st century scholarship, which is you know, the use of the digital humanities. We work closely with Ida, uh, the 
uh, Institute for Digital Arts and Humanities uh, uh, that the university has uh, uh, set up in the college. I was a fellow there for a couple of years. Molly was held by them. Judah Cohen has been a fellow. So we've been very closely um, uh, related, intertwined with them. We are looking forward to being able to introduce students to more of this, of this kind of research. The other way we've contributed to our students' education has been by simply employing them in the center and showing them how the databases work and having them work on those databases. Some of our students have gone on to work in the digital humanities field. Dana Barron, who did a dissertation with me on scribal practices in the 15th century, decided that she really preferred to work in a digital uh, area. Katie Chapman now works in our own IT services. This is one of those centers that are also very deeply integrated into teaching and research in musicology particularly, but we are open to students in music theory and other areas. Our hope is that we will help lead uh, the teaching and the research uh, at Jacobs into the 21st century and, and in this field of the digital humanities, which is constantly evolving and constantly changing. For our listeners, if they wanted to learn more, how could they access the database? We have a website. Uh, it's uh, chmtl.indiana.edu. Helena. What are some of your key research interests and what major projects might you be working on right now? So I came to think of myself as a scholar of uh, the intertwined Polish and Jewish cultures, uh, working mostly on 19th and early 20th century. Chopin, of course, uh, is one of the areas that I have published in. There are uh, three books, a monograph and two edited volumes that I published on this topic. And I am continuing to work on topics related to Chopin or certain aspects of, of his life or his environment. There is a monograph on general kind of study of, of Chopin in the works uh, in the next uh, few years. and. Also, a study that I'm working on with the Chopin Institute in Poland uh, related to Chopin's composition teacher, whose name was Elsner. I am working on an article on an area that I kind of pioneered in uh, the study of the 19th century, which is music and the salons. I'm writing about musical salons in, uh, in Warsaw and in Paris. Um, it's an article that uh, that uh, I am starting to work on right now and should be uh, ready to go within the next year. So these are the, these are some of the projects that I have in uh, that relate to Chopin, but I'm also working on Jewish history, mm -hmm. musical history, but also broader cultural history. Here I am in the process of uh, this one one edited volume that is right now with a press um, and a review that I'm co-editing with two colleagues who are historians. So it's completely interdisciplinary. They are musicologists and historians and literary scholars and film scholars and dance scholars contributing to that volume and telling the story of interactions between the, uh, the Gentile and Jewish cultures in large mm -hmm. cities in historically Polish lands in 19th mm -hmm. uh, century all the way to 
until the Second World War. Uh, the other volume focuses on a more specific topic of the Jewish in a tavern that was owned or leased by a Jewish tavern keeper, innkeeper. It's, it's a fascinating topic because it has brought historical and economic and social impact. Uh, you cannot talk about Poland in the 18th and 19th century, century in particular without taking it into consideration, but it is also an incredibly fertile cultural uh, uh, topic because it gave rise to a number of fascinating literary characters, stories that were told through film and musical representations. And this is something that I'm working on with a colleague at the University of Chicago. So these are uh, the book projects. I also have another uh, Jewish studies uh, book project of my own that I hope to find time to sit down and finish that has to do with the representation of Jews in musical context, mostly as caricature. So it's kind of a blackface representation equivalent uh, in, in Polish history. I see these representations as having really, really strong cultural and political impact in Poland. I also have um, become interested in working with museums. I worked on an exhibit in a museum in Poland. I was one of the co-authors of the exhibit. We actually got a very prestigious award. Uh, it was a microhistory of Jewish life in the interwar period in what was at the time the second largest Jewish community in the second largest city in Poland. And out of that museum project, I developed a digital project with Ida mm -hmm. and uh, I'm continuing to work on that project that uses the resources of digital humanities to, wow. to tell the story in a virtual environment. And very possibly there will be another museum project coming up soon, uh, also in Poland. So I'm excited about that. It, it kind of allows me to exercise a different part of my brain. It's, it's exciting uh, to think about how will you tell that story to a very broad audience, because we want to reach children K to 12 and uh, adults at the same time, not lose sight of people who are professionally interested in these topics, such as scholars. So it's, it's very interesting to work on these. Interesting to say the least. One of you mentioned early in our conversation, it might've been Peter, or it may have been you, Helena, um, I think when we were touching on the colloquium series um, about asking questions. And as a lifelong researcher to you, what makes a good question? A good question comes out of the material that you're studying. Mm -hmm. I think when you come to your material with a kind of a priori question, sometimes it ends up being artificial. Sometimes you will find out that you run into walls. But for me, my own research questions very often come from the material itself. Something mm -hmm. does not fit together. Something does not belong. Something tells me a story or wants to tell me a story that does not align with the stories of that particular thing that are available. So I think the, you know, a, a good research question 
first of all, is a question that comes from the thing, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's a yeah. musical object, whether it's a manuscript, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's a cultural phenomenon. And not every interesting question ends up being a good question because sometimes you cannot necessarily find the answers. Sometimes, you know, question seems exciting and interesting, but it cannot be sustained. It's a question that has, you know, a one sentence answer, so to speak. Right. So there are many factors to, you know, what makes a good research uh, question. But I think those of us who, who love research, we find no shortage of these materials that speak to us and ask mm -hmm. us to follow up, to contextualize, to understand deeper. That's all very good. Thank you. As our series is called Reminiscing in Time, might you all briefly share just one particularly memorable moment from your time here at Jacobs, be it humorous, poignant, enlightening? Among mm. the most fun I've had in the department, to be frank, is our parties. I think we have a reputation as one of the friendliest uh, departments because we get together so often, not only in our weekly colloquium, but also in regular parties. One of them is the annual house concert where folks bring in either a serious piece of music and perform it with all seriousness or a sort of musical stunt. One of, one of my favorites, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two favorites actually, one by a faculty member and one by a student. There is a, it, it's, it's a whole a genre of pieces of so-called music, avant-garde music from the 1960s by composers such as Lamont Young, who pose questions. Uh, he has one which is, I think, draw a line on the ground and follow it, or hold one tone for a very long time. One of these concept pieces is by John Cage, zero minutes and zero seconds, and it's to perform a disciplined action of some sort. And so Phil Ford, one of our colleagues, performed this piece at, a, um, at one of the house concerts. And the way he performed it was by playing a movement from a Mozart sonata. <laughs> he's a great pianist, that was, that was uh, very special. But we listened to it in a completely different way because we were experiencing it as a performance of a piece by John Cage. And one of his students, Aaron Reedford, was having trouble figuring out what to do with his dissertation. He was working very hard on it. So he conceived of performing at the house concert a song, a blues mm. song about why he wasn't working on his dissertation, which was hysterically funny. And we all, we all uh, greatly appreciated that. I have a number as well, but I think my favorite moment uh, was uh, the day that Hans Tischler gave his last uh, colloquium paper at age 90. And uh, it was uh, beautifully delivered. It was an elegantly written little paper. Hans would come to colloquium religiously um, every single week. And uh, his presence uh, long after he had retired was one of the things that I've always felt distinguishes scholarship uh, and actually music in many ways, but scholarship in particular because of my field. And that is the fact that one never really stops one is a scholar uh, for life. I mean, once you, once you have this, you, you don't stop doing it. Hans was a living demonstration of this, uh, that, uh, that he remained engaged, he remained interested, 
And, uh, you know, he was 90. I mean, that is, that is a remarkable thing to be lucid enough at 90. Gosh, I hope I, I am that half that lucid by the time I get there, if I do. And, uh, and then just simply to have the, uh, the presence to get up in front of, uh, you know, your colleagues, your long followed uh, students. It was just a moving moment. And for me, it uh, encapsulates the nature of the department. Beautiful. Helena, would you like to take us home with a memory of yours? Well, I I would like to share two quick memories. Both of them are, I'm more predictable than my colleagues. I will talk about events that were organized that that I participated in in organizing. And one of them was the celebration, the, the commemoration of 150th anniversary of Chopin's death in 1999. And we had a series of events, concerts and uh and a conference, and I still think back to these concerts, uh, that, that this amazing atmosphere that we had. One of the concerts was supposed to emulate in a, in a concert setting as much as one can do it, um, the kind of programming that and, and spontaneity that one would have in salon concerts. And we had many, many students and many faculties in various instrumental combinations playing very heterogeneous uh, repertory that that heterogeneity was also typical of salon concerts. And our hall had just standing room only. And, and there was just, there was a certain informality to that concert that I think everybody enjoyed tremendously. I talked to Emil Naumov in in uh, Intel doing some improvising in Chopin's music. It, it, it was really just a concert unlike any other. There was a second concert that closed the event where uh, A. Peter Brown, uh, who was the chair of the department at the time, but had a training and past life as a conductor, also conducted uh, an orchestra in another heterogeneous concert, more now with the typical 1830s and 40s concert programming. So these events, there was such an energy in them that was just uh, wonderful. And and to see these crowds and crowds of students who came in to hear their peers and how this kind of informal uh, occasion can generate so much enthusiasm. So that was one. The other one was more recent and it was performance. It was a performance of Krzysztof Penderecki's St. Luke Passion. And of course, it was wonderful to have Penderecki and to interact with him and mm-hmm. and to see him work with the chorus and orchestra. Uh, of course, uh, they were prepared by others. Dominique Deoria, of course, you know, prepared the chorus beautifully. Uh, but, but then uh, in the last set of rehearsals, he was there. But what I found incredibly touching, this is music that even now, more than half a century later, sounds very, very avant-garde-ish to our ears. Especially these moments of inner turmoil are expressed with very, very dissonant language. So this is not the kind of music that you necessarily invite your grandma and grandpa to <laughs> listen to. But of course, because the chorus and the orchestra were mm-hmm. so enormous, there was yes. an enormous presence of families who were not yes. necessarily musicians in the concert hall, but also online. And what I was most taken by is how much these people 
who you would assume would not like avant-garde music, how much they were touched by that music. Thank you for sharing those beautiful memories. We're a little over and I'm so grateful for all of you uh, for spending the time with me this afternoon on this episode of Reminiscing in Time, a history of Midwestern music. Helena Goldberg, Massimo Osi, and J. Peter Burkholder, thank you so much and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. Wear your masks and be safe. Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists from Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacob School of Music. Find us on Spotify, Instagram, YouTube, or music.indiana.edu.